everyone. Thank you for coming and watching Black Kids Matter Space. Um, today, we're very pleased to have Dr. Julian Ajiman, PhD, FRSA, FRGS, is a professor of urban and environmental policy and planning at Tufts University. He is the originator of the increasingly influential concept of just sustainabilities, the intentional integration of social justice and sustainability defined as the need to ensure a better quality of life for all, now and into the future, in a just and equitable manner, whilst living within the limits of supporting ecosystems. Trained in the UK, initially in geography and botany, conservation policy, and finally urban studies, he is better known as a critical urban planning and environmental social science scholar. His combined science and social science background together with extensive experience in local government consulting, working for the board level of advising in the NGO and community-based organizations helps his frame research and writing. This enables him to thrive at the borders and intersections of a wide range of disciplines, knowledges, and mythologies, which he uses in creative and original ways. So thank you so much for, for being on the show, Julian. You're just, you know, you're thank an amazing you. person and uh, we're well, very pleased to have you, you here today. Um, I'm just gonna kind of just jump into the questions because you have so much knowledge and I wanna make sure everybody gets all of that knowledge. What is your first space memory? You know, it could be public transit, going outside. When is the first time you notice space? Well, it's a, a really great question and it's a very difficult question. But when I'm thinking about it, I think really it was my experience of nature. I was brought up as a kid uh, in a suburban area of, uh, of the UK and we had easy access to go out and look at uh, the countryside. We, we looked at plants. I developed a passion for bird watching and I got my first pair of binoculars when I was about nine or 10 years old. So really my first experience of space was natural spaces or my first passionate experience of space, natural spaces, spaces where I just used to wonder uh, about nature. And what's interesting is I feel privileged that I came into environmentalism, if you like, through the love of nature. So many kids these days come into environmentalism through fear of what's happening to the planet, through fear of climate change, through fear of uh, you know rampant suburbanization. Um, so I feel privileged that, I, that my first experiences of space were of natural spaces where I just developed a, a deep and lifelong passion. I think that's really beautiful. I mean, just to say that, it's just because we are so much of what we know now or some people when they're going out to get knowledge, it's, it's based on fear. Like I remember when I was environ, you know, I got into the environmental movement, it was because I thought I was killing the planet. So it's good to hear that kind of perspective and that roots you in how you do your research. So what is just sustainabilities? Well, if we went out onto the streets of uh, Boston, where I am, or, or New York, or Los Angeles, and we asked 10 people, what is sustainability? They would say, well, I think it's about the environment. And of course, it is about the environment, but it's about so much more. I could imagine that we could have a, a green planet, but if it wasn't socially just, would it really be sustainable? So over the last 25, 30 years, I've been looking at the literature and the discourse, the narrative of sustainability, and I've noticed that there's what I call an equity deficit. Equity is seen as um, 
implicit rather than being explicit. And so just sustainability is, is, a, is an attempt to try and get an explicit dialogue around social justice within sustainable futures. And in many ways, it's quite similar to environmental justice, but I think it differs because environmental justice is seen by a lot of policymakers as being an advocacy agenda, an agenda for advocates and activists, whereas sustainability is now very much in the common policy language. So a group of us felt, hey, if we can insert the justice of environmental justice into sustainability discourses, then we can move the conversation along for the benefit of everyone. And so just sustainability then is the explicit acknowledgement, explicit, not implicit, of social justice for sustainable futures. That's really very interesting because it seems like a lot of times in the environmental movement, it's viewed, not environmental, but urban planning, it seems to be an extra instead of a part of the movement or part of urban planning. Absolutely. Um, and in fact, a lot of my writing more recently now has been very explicit in acknowledging that if urban planning doesn't start with considerations of equity and social justice, they cannot be, or it is very difficult to retrofit equity and social justice once you've thought about other things. And, you know, one of the, one of the classic cases at the moment is gentrification. I mean, gentrification is unjust um, in the sense that people are moved out of their neighborhoods, they're displaced from their neighborhoods. But we have a lot of strategies that we can think about, such as building in affordability strategies into uh, neighborhood plans. Uh, we can think about a whole range of different ways that we could slow and even stop gentrification. And these are being written about at the moment, but many cities are just looking for the extra tax dollars from more wealthy residents and more, more prestigious homes, if you like. Yes, we're not being that honest. So what is uh, sharing cities? Can you explain that a little bit? Well, actually, yeah. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, when I think about cities and I think about the history and origins of cities, cities were always shared spaces. Cities occurred, um, you know, three, 4,000 years ago in order to uh, administer an agricultural surplus. So we, we, when we had settled agriculture, we had fields, we had food, we had a harvest, and then we had some left over. Cities were spaces where we administered that, uh, that harvest, where we administered that, uh, that uh, storage, if you like. Uh, we had priestly classes, we had workers, but, but the spaces of cities have always been shared. Uh, and if you go back to the ancient cities of uh, Middle America, of uh, Mesopotamia, of China, of India, they all featured uh, often shared housing, shared bathing spaces. So the idea then is what we have today is we have this phrase, the sharing economy. And I'm okay with that, but is it really a sharing economy when Uber and Airbnb are multi-billion dollar businesses. The idea of renting a room out in your house or sharing a, a car space with somebody who needs to go somewhere, that's fine. But at the moment, that's almost the limit of the sharing economy. So the idea of the sharing city is, how do we get back to thinking about cities as spaces that 
everybody can inhabit, the parks, the libraries, the schools, the hospitals, the infrastructure, both real infrastructure and cyberspace as well. So the city is made up of a lot of spaces that we have to share, streets, uh, are another space that we use every day that people often don't think of places or spaces. So the idea of sharing cities is how do we get back to thinking about the city as uh, as a shared space? And one of the best examples at the moment is the city of Medellin in Colombia, where for those of you who watch Narcos uh, on HBO, you'll know that this was the city in the 80s that was dominated by drug cartels and over the last 30 or so years, the city council has focused its work on what it calls social urbanism, focusing on popular empowerment, but focusing on the poorest people first. Again, this basis in social justice, urban planning with social justice at its core. And the city wins massive awards now all over the world for its inventiveness, for its um, its recreation and um development of open spaces and places that are for all people of Medellin, not just for the wealthy. And the poorest areas, which are up in the hillsides, have been reconnected to the downtown by cable car systems, uh, escalator systems. The city has spent a lot of money on creating an urban commons. And that's the focus really of the sustainable and, sh and sharing city. How do we recreate the urban commons, the popular spaces, the spaces of engagement where we meet as equals. How do we do that? And that's the quest behind my book, Sharing Cities. MIT Press 2015, go out and buy it. <laughs> we, we will. And I love the fact that you brought up Colombia. You know, so many times we're talking about just cities and sustainability. We bring up Amsterdam, we bring up Europe. So it was great that you kind of bring up different parts of the world that we don't always often um, discuss or, or talk well, about. Well, Locke, on that point, I would um, encourage your listeners to look to Latin American cities. I mean, before Medellin, Bogota was the kind of transformation miracle. Um, cities like Belo Horizonte in Brazil, where they have, uh, it's what Francis Moore Lape called the city that abolished hunger. Uh, cities uh, that have developed uh, participatory budgeting like Porto Alegre in Brazil. There are, there are many, many cities in Latin America that really do seem to work. That's not to say they've got rid of poverty. They haven't. Mm -hmm. But that there are mayors, powerful mayors, who have a philosophy. And I go back again to Medellin, this philosophy of social urbanism. How many of our mayors in North America, Canada, Europe, United States. How many of our mayors have a philosophy behind what they do? Most of our mayors juggle the mixed demands of developers, unions, and, uh, and, and, and ordinary citizens, but they don't have a philosophy. And I think if more of our mayors thought about and enacted some form of philosophical uh, approach like social urbanism, we would have cities, more sharing cities, more resilient cities, and more sustainable cities. That, that is very true. But how can we now, what we're doing now, we're using a lot of technology to do sharing, but how can we assure that technology and smart cities, which kind of supposedly goes along with the sharing city, doesn't adopt the racism of our institutions? Another great question. And so smart cities is, is a sometimes a bit of a misnomer. Um, 
and in our book on sharing cities, we do look at this idea of, uh, of smart cities. To some people, smart cities are simply techno cities, wired cities, cities where everything is controlled, data is gathered and programmed into making the city run more efficiently. That's one interpretation. My interpretation is that the smart city is the city that enables its citizens to reach their maximum potential through the sensible use of technologies. And again, I come back to this idea that if we don't have social justice and equity at the core of our policies, then we will have uh, inequitable cities. The smart city will just amplify the socio-spatial inequities that we have today. So there has to be regulation and intervention at the city level to create that see smartness as an enabler of uh, the common good. And, you know, one, one very good example I can give you of the way that smart city technologies can be used to benefit those on lower incomes is uh, real-time bus information. I mean, who uses buses? Who uses it most? Um, and the fact now that most progressive cities have bus stops with information on, that's a great benefit to, you know, the working parent or guardian who needs to get from A to B quickly and doesn't necessarily have to wait. Uh, they can do an extra bit of shopping because they know that the number one bus is coming in 15 minutes. So it's a time saver and it's a, it's a livelihood improver for people rather than just what a lot of smart cities are is they improve the lifestyles of the rich, not necessarily the livelihoods of the poor. And I want to see the smart city as being the city that improves the livelihoods of the poor. And I have to say that the, the bus technology, the next bus technology was amazing. When I did not have a car in Los Angeles, I mean, it when the buses took an hour to come, it really made a difference to have that technology. And you're right, it, it did make my life much easier. Sure. So we're gonna go into bike share, placemaking, all of these terms which seem on the surface like such great ideas, but it seems as if corporations are kind of adopting them and they're becoming not so much bike share, but maybe placemaking. Now, what are your thoughts on bike share placemaking? Are they doing it right? I mean, not that you're, well, you are the, the originator of just sustainability, so I can't ask you, <laughs> are they doing it right? Yes and no. Um, where to start? Cause that, that's a really big question. Um, placemaking, let's think about placemaking. Placemaking, is now the the big narrative in urban planning how do we make places but you know again i would say who are we making the place for and who is making decisions about what the place looks like now in the united states we have a, a movement for placemaking or part of the movement for placemaking called complete streets the idea that you know we should have streets as places not just as conduits for vehicles that we should broaden the sidewalk plant some trees put in some seats for people to linger uh, put in bike lanes uh, not just bike lanes but a median separating the bikes from cars you know the, the full treatment it's a great idea but and here's to your corporation's point this increases the walkability and the cyclability of a street. And what is walkability correlated with? House price increases. 
What is cyclability correlated with house price increases? Who owns the app for walk score and cycle score? Who? It's a real estate company, and, and I'm blanking on the name. Is it Redfin or uh, it's one of these real yes, estate it companies? Is. Yes. Redfin. Okay. So let's just ponder on this point. Two of the biggest features of placemaking, walkability and cyclability, are owned by a massive real estate corporation. We have commoditized sustainability such that it is now something that the wealthy can buy into. I want to see a just sustainability where low-income neighborhoods have complete streets that do not get gentrified and people do not get displaced. And we can do it. We just have to put the policies in place. And that needs strong government and it needs government with a philosophy behind what it's doing. Uh, and so in terms of placemaking, yes, I agree. It's a great idea. But as it's currently practiced, it is leading to uh, elite segregation, uh, socioeconomic segregation of neighborhoods. Now, some people would say greenlining, which is this phenomenon of developing these green and complete street neighborhoods. Some people would say this is the new redlining. Mm -hmm. Now, redlining was explicitly racist. Greenlining isn't explicitly racist, but its effects can be racist because socioeconomic issues in the United States are so tightly intermingled with issues of race. So um, placemaking needs to be very carefully handled by civil society. It's a good thing, but if we let the free market run placemaking, as we largely do, then we're going to have deepening socio-spatial inequalities in our cities and in terms of bike share um, you know bike share is another part of the package of place placemaking measures um, i got a call recently from a bike share uh, organization in a large u.s city saying hey julian you know we've been up and running now for three or four years um, our bike share is more successful than our early business projections but you know what we've got virtually no people of color and no low income people using our bikes why why what can we do and i said well did you involve any low income people or people of color in the conception of your bike share program uh no uh, sh should we i said well yeah maybe maybe you should <laughs> and, <laughs> you know i i was being kind of ironic with them but and they they didn't get it really but uh, but the point is here these bike share schemes most of them were dreamt up by white middle class folks and based around commuting and tourism both of which are not necessarily the priorities for low-income people or people of color and so my question to a lot of these bike share schemes is what would a bike share scheme look like if it were designed around explicitly not implicitly but explicitly designed around the needs of people on low incomes and people of color now dockless bike share has is changing the picture a little bit and um you know i'm sure my colleague do lee in a an earlier um, an earlier broadcast of your show uh, addressed this, and, and Doe is an expert. But but my experience really is again bike share, great idea, poor practice a lot of the time, placemaking, 
great idea, but poor practice a lot of the time. Complete streets, great idea, but poor practice a lot of the time. In fact, and here's another book plug, you know, one of my books is called Incomplete Streets because my, my point is, if we don't get the narratives of all locals in the neighborhood, how are we going to know what the dream of a complete street is? And too often when we talk about complete streets, we have urban designers who look at cut, cookie cutter designs for a street uh, straight out of a design manual. They seem to ignore the fact that streets are social spaces and streets are social spaces. How can we redesign physically a street without considering the social uh, context in which the street exists? So again, this is what being a critical urban planner is when you, when you announced me. I'm not saying urban planning is wrong and that a lot of the things that we do in urban planning are wrong. I'm saying that the way we do them is often wrong, which leads to deepening social and spatial inequalities in our cities. So in many ways, we are reproducing some of the segregations and separations and um, enclosures and erasures that we've had in the past. But we're doing it now through sustainability, not necessarily directly through racism as we did in the past. You know, I've always wondered a lot of times, is it so innocent? Like, is the way, I mean, we have real, the thing is that just like, you know, like you brought up, you have realtors and developers paying for these things. And also even with urban planners and even urban planning media, like what I'm doing, it's mainly funded by developers, except for me. <laughs> so, so, I mean, how can we get more people, well, how can we get more people thinking like you in regards to being critical when their money is coming from development? Well, yeah, you know, and, and you, you raise a good point here, um, this innocence point. Um, you know, and I think about many of the good liberal mayors in this country, and they would be shocked if they heard me give them a presentation about why what they're doing might not be so innocent after all. See, look, they want the tax dollars. They want the increased tax dollars, uh, period. And maybe they're prepared to accept the effects of that in terms of gentrification and displacement. I mean, you know, you look at what's happening in Brooklyn. You look at what's happening uh, here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I am right now. You look at what's happening in Oakland. Uh, are we innocent of what's going on? No, no, we're not at all. In fact, in one of the chapters in, in one of my books, uh, there's a quote from an elderly African-American man, and it's the saddest quote I've ever heard. He's sitting outside a house in West Oakland, and he says to the interviewer, someday the white folks are going to want these homes again. Remember, in the 40s and 50s, the whites scattered off into the Oakland Hills. They left West Oakland and now they're coming back. Someday the white folks are going to want these homes again. This predictability, but it doesn't need to be like this. And, you know, to your point, and we haven't really discussed it, I want to see more young, critical urban planners going into practice, shaking up planning departments. It, 
listen, it, there's no silver bullet here. There's no silver bullet um, because as one uh, community activist in Boston said to me, he said, Julian, in the 1980s, gentrification was a lot more um, in your face because we knew who the developers were. We knew where the money was coming from. Now, we don't know where the money's coming from. We don't know the developers. So we've got this globalization of gentrification. And that is, is, is a problem. Um, now, some cities like Vancouver uh, are trying to uh, stop or slow international investment by charging uh, a percentage fee on development uh, on, on developers and developments but you know these fees are so small and in very very hot property markets it's worth paying the paying the fee so so it is it is tough i mean this is the i think the the nub of the biggest problem in urban planning which is gentrification we all want nice neighborhoods but we've commodified niceness or sustainability to such an extent that only the rich can have these nice neighborhoods. I want to see Roxbury and Dorchester and other neighborhoods in the Boston area that disinvested. I want to see them with complete streets, but complete streets that have been dreamt up and imagined and designed by and for local people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to go to your you know, one of your, your articles, um, Mind the Gap, Why Do People Act Environmentally? And What Are the Barriers to Pro-Environmental Behaviors? Why do you think that has been cited so frequently? And do people understand it? And are people using the article properly? Because I know it's like you write something and you just become just, the article becomes its own little brain and, and own little body. And are people <laughs> interpreting it correctly? Yeah, so I mean, the article really uh, is popular because it's what's called, in academic terms, a review article. Mm -hmm. It we we looked at all the literature and we pulled it all together in one place. So people like those because you then don't have to go to a million other articles because you've got it all in one place. The key message in that article, um, the, the simplest message that I can. Um, you know, talk about in this interview, excuse me, is is that uh, information, giving people information does not change their behavior. Now, that's what we call the gap. That's why we called it mind the gap, because there's a gap between giving people information and then having them act environmentally. Now, look, when I'm given some information and you are, we act in accordance with that because we have what's called a locus of control. We have agency. But for many people, they know they should act more environmentally. But, you know, it's either too costly in terms of money or time. Um, they, they've got kids to feed. They, they don't do it. So really what the article is trying to say is we need to move beyond simple information processes and giving people information. And this is what a lot of uh, nonprofits do. They prepare a leaflet. They prepare information in the belief that it's going to change people's behavior. What we need to do is move towards more active forms of learning. And there are many forms. Um, very popular at the moment is so, sort of social psychological ideas and behavioral economics ideas, the so-called nudge theory, where we give people 
through policy. We give them a series of options and really guide them to the most environmentally friendly option. And I, <laughs> let me give you a, I mean, it, to some of your listeners, it might sound crass, but this is a very good example given by one of the authors of the nudge theory. Um, apparently, at Amsterdam Airport, Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, the cleaners were complaining that in the men's urinal, there was a lot of splash and that cleaning was always a real task. And so the, they got in behavioral economists, social psychologists, how can we change this? So they put an image of a fly in the men's urinal. No more splash. Men aimed at the fly. <laughs> it, it, it sounds it sounds crazy and funny, but Lark, it worked, and and that's an example of nudging people towards a behaviour. That's a way of modifying their behaviour. That isn't putting up a notice saying, "Men, please be careful when you use this urinal. Please do not splash." This is social psychology. This is behavioural economics. This is nudge theory, and there are many, many, many examples obviously much less, uh, but, well, much more concrete than that, but examples of where we can get people to change behavior. Another way is through story and narrative. Many cultures, a lot of immigrant cultures especially, use story and narrative as a, a tool to model and change behavior. So, you know, I want to see policymakers, I want to see, you know, uh, environmentalists think of a whole range of, of ways of communicating with different audiences. And really, that's what that article is, is, is about. It's about how do we get people to do things that are uh, for the benefit of everybody, for the benefit of what I was calling earlier, the urban commons. Mm -hmm. So I wanna, you know, I don't want to take too much of your time, but I wanna ask more questions. So, okay. But in your one of your books, um, it says institutional factors, many pro environmental behaviors can only take place if the necessary infrastructure is provided recycling, take it public transit, the poorer the service, the less likely people are to use it. Now, this is a conversation you kind of touched upon this right now, but this kind of goes against like outside of academia, it goes against what green is, where it's more like, you know, you do your part. Um, and especially in uh, uh, more economically oppressed communities of color, where you, if you don't drive, you have to take three buses. If you do, you know, it's, it makes it quite inconvenient. It's not even just, I don't want to do it. But like you said, it, it's, you know, how can we get policymakers, um, not so much people, but how can we get policymakers to understand that concept? Well, Infrastructure is important, but it's not the whole story. Um, and the bikes issue is a clear example of that. You know, providing bike infrastructure doesn't necessarily mean, or providing bike sharing infrastructure doesn't necessarily mean everyone will use it. Now, in some countries, like, for instance, Denmark and the Netherlands, um, so cities like Copenhagen and Amsterdam, where biking is part of the culture, I'm, I'm always amazed. You see Muslim women, pregnant women, elderly men and women, lovers, uh, North African immigrants, everybody on bikes. We don't see that in the US. Why is that? 
okay, in Amsterdam and Copenhagen, they have the infrastructure, but there's also a culture within the countries of cycling, that cycling is just the normal way of getting around. In the US, we've still commoditized. Remember what I was saying about sustainability being commoditized? Mm -hmm. You know, you've got the, the, the uh, you know, the skinny jean guys, you know, with their bike locks and their fixed wheel bikes. In, in the US, we don't cycle, we have cyclists. And cyclist has become a badge an identity, whereas in the Netherlands and in Denmark, cycling is much more about a way of life, a livelihood, rather than a lifestyle. Um, and livelihoods are much less amenable to being an identity than our lifestyles. I mean, we're all about lifestyle in the US, and cycling is, you know, almost a badge of honor. I'm a cyclist, you know, rather than I cycle. So, again, I think providing infrastructure is one thing, but behavioral and cultural norms are required as well as good infrastructure. And I think the other thing is we tend to have too many silver bullet ideas about how to change behavior. There is no one silver bullet. Again, infrastructure, behavioral change, policy incentives etc these we need packages just like we can't just put up parking fees we need to make public transit safer faster cheaper we need integrated transport management integrated policy making and this is what the europeans call joined up thinking let's stop thinking in silos and let's start thinking across policy domains so let's join up our policy making. And I want to see this joined up policy making happening. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the one of my favorite series um, is the Rutledge Equity, Justice, and Sustainable City series. And I was so shocked when I found out I'm like, oh wow, Dr. Ashman, he's the person that, you know, he's one of the editors. So how did that come about? Well, you know, Lark, I mean, as you mentioned, my 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 life's work is around originating and disseminating and mentoring the next generation to think about this idea of just sustainabilities. And I looked at the Routledge um, books and they were all about the sustainable city, but all about the environmentally sustainable city. And there was very little, very little on equity, justice and the sustainable city. And with my colleague, Steve Zawistowski in uh, San Francisco, we said, hey, Steve, you know, let, let's, let's, let's do something about this. And we, we approached Routledge and, you know, they're a great uh, publisher. I mean, they're huge. Uh, but they said, hey, absolutely, there's a gap in the market. And we are literally inundated with good manuscripts. And the, our goal is to grow it to be the preeminent series. We don't accept manuscripts that don't address explicitly explicitly equity and social justice and again we we are inundated with good manuscripts so you know the idea came up really as a result of steve and i thinking about this idea of sharing this idea of justice and equity in the city and um yeah and, and that book series and i also have another one with z books which is a kind of radical 
uh, academic in, uh, publisher in, in London. Uh, and that's called Just Sustainability in Policy Planning and Practice. And again, that's doing well because I think more and more people now are beginning to realize we cannot silo environmental action and social or social justice action. And I would even go as far to argue that we've had social justice failures and environmental failures because the two fields have never talked to each other. And I've just done the sleeve notes of an excellent book which is about environmental justice and social work. Because for the longest time, social workers didn't really deal with environments or the environments in which their clients were living. And all of a sudden they realized, hang on, we need to think about environmental justice because many of the problems that we deal with as social workers are, if not caused by, exacerbated by the environments in which some of our clients are living. So again, I, I'm a pioneer in this area and, you know, I, I want to leave you because I know you can't go on for too long, but what people don't know about me, not what a lot of people don't know, I mean, my mother's white, my father's black, Dalman, my mother's English. I'm, I straddle two worlds, a black world and a white world, and I'm old enough to have come to be comfortable doing that. But what it's done for me is given me an approach to research where I thrive at boundaries. I am a boundary myself. And so I thrive at these boundaries between the environmental and the social. And when you were reading uh, about my degrees, my first degree was geography and botany, you know, environmental science or ecology. And then I moved to urban studies uh, in my PhD. So I can see across these artificial boundaries that we create and I would recommend for any young people listening to look at urban planning as that intersection between the physical worlds and the social worlds between sort of you know demographics on the one hand and economics between sort of ecology and society and it's a wonderful place to break down barriers and to think about really what the sustainable sharing and smart city of the future could be well i have to say that you know that was an amazing i'm gonna say like oh, wow i i i feel like i i'm 10 times smarter now that i've talked to you <laughs> <laughs> i mean but because you are and i love the fact that you document what you do and you say this is i have done this work i think so many times people are modest and we don't know where things come from and i think we don't understand our history and we don't understand the, the journey of how we came about things, we can't, or items or activities, we can't do them correctly. So thank you, um, Dr. Ajahn, for you know, all the work that you have done for so many years in the UK, here in the US and abroad, like everywhere. Um, and I know you left us with something already, but is there anything else that you would like to say to us at Black Kids in Outer Space? Yeah, there is, and I've been thinking about this, uh, this, this last point I'd like to make. It's a very simple one. One thing, and I'm always telling my students this, one thing that I've noticed about sustainability and urban planning is we're always looking for solutions. What's the solution to gentrification? What's the solution to inclusive placemaking? Let's stop looking for solutions. Let's make sure we ask the right questions. Because in asking the right questions, you are on your way to better solutions. And you know what? Those questions that are the right questions are usually around 
who gets what, when, where, and how, and who's involved. These are questions of social justice and equity. So stop looking for solutions, make sure you ask the right questions. That's excellent advice because that's not advice we often hear. <laughs> They're like, don't talk unless you can give an answer. I'm like, I don't know. So thank you so much for um, coming and um, we, we look forward to any other talks that you're having. You have any talks um, coming up or that we should know about? Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I, I talk a lot around the world basically. And um, my last talk was actually in Stockholm in Sweden uh, last month and uh, in November, I'm going to be, oh, October, I'm going to be in Toronto, and then I'm going to be in Halifax, Nova Scotia in November. But I, I generally take the summer off and take a, a little bit of R&R time. So, yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you.